invite you to join me. John 19, if you are not there already, John 19, we'll be looking at the first 16 verses. John 19, 1 through 16, let's open with a word of prayer. God most high, truly it is our desire this morning to honor and to glorify your name, to give our lives in honor of you. You are creator, you are sustainer, you are savior, you are keeper, you are faithful and you are worthy. Heavenly Father, truly desire of our hearts is in this hour to magnify your name, to give you the glory that is yours. We pray that as we open the word of God, as we look at this passage, that your spirit would work in each and every one of us, that you would open our eyes to the glory of Christ the depth of our sin, and that we would be moved to respond. May you be honored in everything that is said in this next hour. In Jesus' name, amen. John 19, 1 to 16. I told Jim this morning after a Sunday school ser uh, service, a Sunday school lesson, uh, and I think he said, he's mentioned this several times, that we're tracking right together. We're, we're right along in this story as he's working through Mark and we're working through John. And I think that's good. I think that's good. We're seeing the same story from two perspectives. And praise God for that. You may have seen those commercials they come on every once in a while where it shows these animals who are so sad and beaten and Sarah McLaughlin's in the background singing this just beautifully haunting song. And what's the goal of that, of those pictures and of that music? What is the goal? What are they trying to accomplish in that? They're trying to move your heart to respond in a certain way, are they not? They're trying to get you to give $1 a day to help this animal, this poor, beaten, neglected animal. As we come to John 19 this morning, we see Pilate trying to use that same emotion to move the people to respond a certain way to Jesus. We'll see right here at the beginning, he, he tries to, to satisfy their bloodlust. To let Jesus go. To see him as pathetic and powerless. And yet it doesn't work. 
As we work our way through this passage, we'll see Jesus beaten, accused, and condemned. First thing we see in these first six verses is beaten. Coming through the end of, verse, uh, of chapter 18, people have held their own kangaroo court. They've sent him to Pilate. Pilate has found no fault in him. He implores them, let him go. And instead, the people demand, give us Barabbas. So as we come to chapter 19, this is Pilate moving right out of that. He's responding to that. So then, after the people choose Barabbas, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. As we look at that word, scourged, there's three levels to Roman scourging. There's the first, which is the least severe. It involves whipping and beating, and it was for petty crimes. There was a middle level, and there was the most severe. And the most severe, if you were not a Roman citizen, involved a whip that had pieces of, of metal or bone inserted in the straps. And, and if you've grown up in church, you've heard this before. And with that whip, they would beat incessantly, tearing away the flesh, sometimes till even bone and organs were seen. And they would keep beating until the one who was beating was exhausted. Until the soldier in charge, and, and often it wasn't one, it was two that would switch off until they were exhausted. Often this last level of Roman scourging it was often tied to something else, like crucifixion. It was the first step moving towards death. And it was so severe that, that many men would sometimes die just from the beating. As we come to, to this passage here, and Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. It seems unlikely that Pilate would condemn Jesus to that most severe beating prior to sentencing. I think what we see here is not one beating, but two beatings. One beating prior to sentencing that's hinted at here in John and in Luke by the language that is used. A beating that, that would leave Jesus swollen and bloody and weak. A beating that was meant to move the people to see Jesus. This, this man who's proclaimed to be innocent by Pilate. I see no wrong in him. As they see Jesus standing there beaten and, and bloody. They'd be satisfied. I think that's, that's Pilate's goal here. 
think the other gospel accounts point to this first scourging being the least severe, whipping and a beating, and yet it is still, it is still severe. It is still brutal. But Pilate is trying to build sympathy for Jesus, to appease the crowd. He is scourged. He is whipped and beaten. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns, most likely from the date palm, with thorns up to 12 inches long. They put it on his head. They put on him a purple robe, the color of royalty, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! They're mocking him. And yet, even here, we see the irony that we've seen all throughout John. As they say far more than they know they're saying. They mock him. They continue to beat him. They struck him with their hands. Jim was reading this morning about how in Mark it describes them striking him and mocking him, saying, who is it that hit you? And the reality is that Jesus knew exactly who it was that was hitting him. He knew those soldiers' names. And yet he died for them anyways. They struck him with their hands. As I mentioned, this first beating, this first scourging is meant to appease the crowd. We see later in Matthew 27, 26 and Mark 15, 15, those passages describe the most severe scourging that Jesus faces after he is sentencing, preparing him for the cross as they beat him to within an inch of his life. At this point, Pilate then went out again to the people. He says, Behold, I am bringing him out to you. For what purpose? Why doesn't Pilate just move on with the procession? Why is he bringing him out to you? That you may know that I find no fault in him. This is Pilate's purpose, to appease the crowd. To let him see, to let them see. I find no fault in him, yet you do, and I'm willing to beat him. I'm willing to, to satisfy you to a point, but I find no fault in him. It's the second of three times when Pilate says that. The first time we saw last week in chapter 18, verse 38. This is the second. We'll see it again in a few verses in verse 6. Three times the pilot makes it clear, I find no fault in this man. Pilate's now made this announcement. He's coming out. No, I find no fault in him. And so Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. He would have been weak and swollen. Blood would have been pouring down his face from the thorns. He would have been unrecognizable, been running down his legs, pulling at his feet from his back. 
And as he comes out, Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Look, you chief priests who stir the crowds and accuse this man who so threatens you. Look, look, you mob, on the one for whose blood you cry. He is harmless. He is no threat to Rome. He is innocent. Behold the man. Look and see him. Beaten and bloodied. In the larger context of John's gospel, Pilate's presentation of Jesus calls through the ages as an invitation for all to look and see. Open your eyes and see Jesus. The Word made flesh, standing beaten and bloody, weak, mocked, falsely accused and innocent, and yet about to be condemned for you. Look and see. Behold the man and believe. Behold the man. So how did the people respond to this? Does Pilate's plan here work? Verse 6, Therefore when the chief priests and the officers note who is leading this unjust mob, it is not the zealots, it's not those on the fringes of Jewish society, It is those who should know better. It is the chief priests and the officers. And when they saw him, they look and they see, and yet they are not moved with compassion as Pilate's hope. They are fueled by hate. They saw him and they cried out saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate responds, You take him and crucify him. There's clear disgust and frustration in his voice. Pilate has given his judgment, but the people refuse to accept him. You crucify him, for I find no fault in him. This is really remarkable when you think about it. Pilate, a Roman officer who is no stranger to brutality, who would do everything he could to keep the peace and appease the crowd. Without a second thought, he would gladly get rid of a Jew. And even Pilate is disgusted at this miscarriage of justice. I find no fault in him. Behold the man beaten and bloody and weak. As you come to verses 7 to 12, Jesus stands accused once again. The Jews respond, we have a law. And according to our law, as uh, Jim pointed out this morning, most likely they're pointing to Leviticus 24, verse 16, according to our law, he ought to die. Because he made himself the son of God. 
The charge that they are now bringing is the charge of blasphemy. Now, if you were paying attention last week, you might notice this is a shift in their argument. Right? They started by arguing a political point. He claims to be our king. He's a threat to Caesar. But now there's a change in their argument, in their conversation. At this point, it's becoming clear that Pilate is not buying, up, buying their trumped-up political charges against Jesus. He is no threat to Rome or to me. So at this point, they, they're abandoning their political strategy. And they're really getting down to their true religious issues and the implications of that. The real issue here, Pilate, what you're failing to understand is that we have a law. And the reason that this crowd is so riled up, the reason that you don't understand why he's guilty is because you don't understand our law. We have a law. And according to our law, he deserves death for blasphemy. See, Pilate is tasked with keeping the peace. And part of keeping the peace in a general area is acknowledging local law and tradition as much as possible. He doesn't have to listen to it. He doesn't have to obey it. But to keep the peace, it's good to acknowledge it. This is our law. This is why you don't see his guilt. This is why you don't understand. And at this point, with the growing crowd, with the growing emotions that surround Passover, with a city that is swelling with people, This new argument has a new potency. They're a religious holiday. Religious people. And this is a religious reason. And the crowd outside Pilate's door is growing. Both in size and in frustration. Therefore, therefore when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid... At this point, there are several things that Pilate is trying to juggle and to work through. He believes that Jesus is innocent. He finds no fault in him. He's had Jesus, who he believes is an innocent man, whipped and mocked brutally. Also, we know from other Gospels at this point that Pilate's wife has had a dream and has come and warned him. And now there's this new revelation and his own personal superstition. And on top of all of that, there's the growing crowd who are impatient and who have their demands. Pilate is realizing that this situation is quickly getting out of control. He's afraid of the people. And yet, perhaps, there's a hint here that he's kind of afraid of Jesus. Between this new claim, between his wife's dream and warning, Pilate's own superstition as a pagan, maybe there's something to this. Maybe, maybe this guy is not just a normal man. And you see that in the question he asked. Pilate goes into the praetorium, he said to Jesus, Where are you from? Where are you from? 
Where are you from? Getting back to, to his origin. Are you merely a man? Or do you have some divine origin? But Jesus gave him no answer. It's back to Isaiah 53, 7, which we read last week as a church. As a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why not? It seems like a great opportunity for Jesus to, to jump in and to, to point Pilate to God. Where are you from? Well, Pilate, actually, I am the Son of God. I am the Word made flesh. I'm from eternity past. I've had no beginning. I came in the flesh to save men from their sins. The reality is that there's no way that Pilate would have processed all of that. In fact, earlier, last week, we saw, as Jesus tries to point Pilate to the truth, how does Pilate respond? What is truth? A dismissive statement. Pilate doesn't want the truth. Jesus' silence is not a protest of Pilate, but a submission to God and his plan. Pilate grows frustrated. Are you not speaking to me? Don't you know who I am, the power that I have? The reality is at this point, Pilate probably has very few options. But how dare you? Don't you know what I can do? And notice that now Jesus speaks. Jesus answered. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. He is silent in verse 8 when it comes to defending himself. He submits to the, to the will of God. And yet now he speaks not to defend himself, but to glorify the Father. To point out the, 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 the authority, the sovereignty of God. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Remember, as we started out, walking through this section, we pointed out, all throughout here, there are hints to the sovereignty of God. All throughout Jesus' rest, his trial, and his crucifixion, it's not that God has lost control. All through here, John is giving us hints. God is in control. This is according to God's plan. Once again, we see that here in Jesus' words. You could have no power over me, Pilate, at all, unless I had been given you from above. There's kind of two meanings to that. First, you have been placed in a position of authority by God. And you have a responsibility there. But there's also a second, more direct meaning. That you would not be in this situation, and I would not be in this situation, unless it were for, for God's sovereign hand. And the unfolding of his plan that has led to this moment. You are here, and I am here, with your authority over me in this trial, because this is God's plan. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. 
Notice that even while acknowledging God's sovereignty in this situation, Jesus notes man's responsibility. There is still sin here. Just because God is sovereign, that does not negate man's responsibility. You are responsible, Pilate, and the one who delivered you, me to you is responsible. Pilate is responsible for the decision that he will make and the actions that he takes. But there are others who are more guilty in this direct situation in Jesus standing before Pilate. The one who delivered me. There's many different opinions on who this specific one is. It could be Judas. It could be just generally the Jews who've rejected Jesus and, and led to this. It could be Caiaphas. Who has planned this and led to this. Regardless of whether it's Judas, Caiaphas, or the crowd. All three of them, unlike Pilate, their rejection is greater for they have seen Jesus' works. They have heard his message. They understand the context of everything that is going on, and yet they reject and they condemn him still. Jesus is here because of their unbelief, not because of Pilate's. Now, Pilate will be responsible for the decision that he will make. But this situation that we find ourselves in, me standing here before you, with you having authority over me, is according to God's plan. At this point, Pilate is convinced of Jesus' innocence. He says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate is convinced of his innocence. Unfortunately, it's not enough to work or to want to do the right thing if you fail to do the right thing. Just a few weeks ago, we had Mother's Day. And that morning, I had every intention of getting up early, getting the kids dressed, loading the car, letting Krista sleep in a little bit, and going and getting donuts and coffee and coming back and surprising her. I had every intention. It didn't happen. But I told her of my intention. She was not as impressed as she would have been if I would have done it. Wanting to do the right thing is not the same as doing the right thing. Pilate sought to release him. And yet, as we'll see, he gives in to the pressure of the Jews. Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Again, we see the irony that is rich all throughout John. Here, we find those who hate Caesar positioning themselves as better friends of Caesar than a Roman governor. We really want what's good for Rome. You, Pilate, you don't. We do. It's a joke. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. We've already seen in that statement they are purposefully stripping away all context and nuance to get what they want. 
And this, this is a real threat. Now Pilate understands. These people are willing to go to extreme ends to get what they want. If I do not do this, not just am I risking a riot, I am risking my own head. Now we come to verse 13, condemned. We see that in Pilate's response. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, at this point he understands it's no longer a matter of innocent and guilty or right and wrong. Now it is strictly politics. Pilate knows what he must do, even though he doesn't agree with it. Even though he doesn't want to, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement. In Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he sat, said to the Jews, Behold your king. It was the preparation day of the Passover. It seems most likely that this is the preparation day for the Sabbath of Passover week. Passover itself, as we know from the Gospels, was Thursday as Jesus ate the Passover with his disciples before his arrest. Now it is Friday, the day of preparation for the Sabbath of Passover week, a high Sabbath. During the week-long celebration of Passover. And it's important for John to note that here because that plays into the rest of the story. That gives a, a hint to us later as they are hurry, hurrying at the crucifixion of Jesus. As they stick the spear in his side rather than letting the crucifixion play its role, take its course. They're in a hurry. It's about the sixth hour. Again, here we have a little bit of a difference. The sixth hour would be 12 p.m. Uh, but Mark mentions it's at Jesus was crucified at the third hour, 9 a.m. Most likely what the difference here simply comes from a context, a people who is not as concerned about exact time as we are. I mean, put yourself in John's situation. All this is going on. It becomes clear that the cross is, is coming close and, and you look up to see where's the sun in the sky. You don't have something on your wrist to look at. Where's the sun in the sky? That's about the 12th hour. I mean, between Mark and John, to be within three hours? It's a lot better than I could do if I were doing that. I don't think it's a contradiction here that we find. Most likely it is sometime between 9 and 10 a.m. And John is not concerned with the exact time as we would be today. He's just giving us an approximation. It's about the sixth hour. And he, Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. Pilate now knows what he must do. He is frustrated with, their, with the Jewish political games. He's frustrated with their accusations. And here he is mocking them. Behold your king. Here is your king. This bloody weak and harmless king. This is the only king that you deserve. He's the only king that you will ever have because you are under the authority of Rome. 
A pilot's perspective and all earthly measures, Jesus is a pathetic excuse for a king, for a pathetic excuse of a people. This is your king. This bloody and beaten and weak man. This is your king. Pilate has no idea, once again, who really stands before him. He has no idea of the truth of that statement. But they, the people, cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. At this point, it is clear we are moving towards the cross. The chief priests have won. The cross is certain. Jesus' death is imminent. Pilate again responds, mocking them, Shall I crucify your king? And here we find a shocking statement. The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. That is a shocking statement. Here we find those demanding Jesus' death for blasphemy. Here they blaspheme God themselves. Don't miss or downplay the significance of what they are saying. Their hope as a people is in God's promise of a messianic king. They believe that their God rules. And yet here they proclaim that they have no God but Caesar. What they are truly saying in this statement is we are not God's people, we are Caesar's people. They throw away in this one statement their identity and their hope to get what they want. We're not unique. We're not the people of God. We have not been chosen. We have no king but Caesar. And yet they will go from here to a week-long celebration of the Passover as if nothing happened. Hypocrisy is overwhelming. In chapter 18, they free a revolutionary in Barabbas only to charge Jesus with being a revolutionary. Here, they blaspheme God as they charge Jesus with blasphemy. We have no king but Caesar. Then he, Pilate, delivered him to them to be crucified. The physical work of the crucifixion is done by Rome, but it is the chief priests and the people of Israel who crucified Jesus. He is betrayed by his own. He is lied about by his own. He is killed by his own. Which takes us all the way back to John 1.11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. To come to the end of this passage, we've seen chief priests who are deceitful, a people who is foolish, and Pilate who is cowardly. And yet, as someone mentioned this morning in Sunday school, we are no better. We are no different. 
In the cross of Christ, we see not only the immeasurable, unconditional love of God, we see the wickedness of man on full display. Your sin. My sin. How do you respond to a passage like this? couple points. First, behold, and second, respond. I would call you this morning like Pilate to behold the man. As you look at this passage, as you behold the Son of God standing bloodied and beaten, standing there for you. Behold the love of God. See the depth and the price of your sin. And yet at the same time, see your hope in the Son of God who died for you. What was that, that song we just sang? The look has a line in there with uh, joyful grief. What's the other one? Joyful grief. And mournful joy and joyful grief. There's good news here. But it is mournful joy that we look at this passage with. And yet as we see this, as we see the depth of the sin of man and the glory of the love of God, we see hope. And a God who loved us like this. So first, behold the man. See. Meditate. And then respond. Let what you see move you to response. First, believe. If you've never placed your faith in Christ alone, as you look at a passage like this, see what he did for you. See how he died for your sin. He took your punishment. And respond to a passage like this in faith. I behold the man and I believe. He did that for me. Secondly, for those of us who are already in Christ, respond in worship. Confess your sin. As you see the depth and the wickedness of man in this passage, see that sin in yourself. Confess confess your sin. In just a second, as we sing a song, proclaim his glory. And then as you go, tell of his greatness. Behold the man. And then respond rightly.